Okay. You ready? Yeah, man. I'm dressed like a longshoreman, but yeah, let's do this. Man. Here we are. We're here, man. I got my longshoreman hat on. You know, yeah, what's uh, is it raining there? <laughs> <laughs> it's not a, this isn't a rain cap, Andy. It's cold outside, and uh, I had to walk Keanu the dog before this, and it's like thirty-three degrees out there, man. So I got my Pedro. When I when I was in college, there was a guy who always wore a yellow coat, and he always wore a blue uh, winter hat. Okay, and he 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 looked like the Gorton's fisherman. Yeah, you know? exactly, dude. And, and we would always see him. He lived kind of at the bottom of the hill in the dining hall, sat uh, up on the top of the hill. And my friends and I would be eating dinner, and we would always see him walking home from dinner. And my friend Brooks would always be like, there he is. There's the fisherman. There's the <laughs> so You have a little bit of a Blue fisherman combo kind of look is giving here. me like Long John Silver vibes. So, <laughs> like... <laughs> I've never eaten at a Long John Silver. I've never eaten at a Red Lobster. Never. What is your problem? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Shout out to both of those. I mean, I, I used to eat Long John Silver when I was younger because there was a dry. I worked at Best Buy in the uh-huh. 90s. Shout out to Best Buy, who's also yellow and blue. Yeah. Just yeah. putting that out there. <laughs> <laughs> and in the parking lot, um, there was a Long John Silver's and I would grab some like fish sticks and shit from time to time. Uh-huh. But I wait for it. Like. One of the first fancy restaurants I think I ever ate at was a Red Lobster. And, um, you know, it, it, I still think Red Lobster is great. I can't eat my favorite thing at Red Lobster anymore. The biscuit. Which is like the, uh, the, cheesy, the cheesy biscuit fish bread yeah. stuff. Because of, that's my problem because of the <laughs> gluten situation. But, man, those things were good. I ate 10 pounds of those things. Yeah. Shout those out rest- to both of those restaurants for keeping seafood affordable for people yeah, and not being exorbitant. <laughs> and you can have a nice meal with your family during the week at Long John Silver. And you can have a nice Friday night meal with your family, special occasion at Red Lobster. Here's my no only problem. problem. Here's my only – I completely agree and I know people who love both of those restaurants. Here's my only problem with that restaurant. Ma- this is mainly more about Red Lobster. It's the commercial. <laughs> It's the commercial where everything is butter. Like there's like a a bathtub of butter and somebody just throws a lobster tail in the the bathtub of butter. It's almost like the next scene, I expect someone to just drink butter. And you have a problem with this. I don't have any problems with this at all. I literally have no problems with this. Look, if Beyonce can eat a red lobster, we can all eat that red lobster. Okay. And it is good. Shout out to red lobster. I'm not saying don't eat there. Just I like red lobster. The commercial, you know, maybe like lemon lobster. squeeze is is what is more. Yeah, my... and, you know, there's this meme <laughs> on, going around Instagram and TikTok and and I think threads all the platforms, and like it's about like where ladies don't want to go on first dates, and somehow <laughs> somehow the Cheesecake Factory is at the top of all these lists, and I'm offended. First of all, because the Cheesecake Factory is an excellent restaurant. I don't like, understand what? the choice. What is, I, what's wrong with the Cheesecake Factory? There's First of all, they have the best cheese. <laughs> yeah, they have the best cheesecake. Second of all, you can get anything you want there. You can get an exorbitant 4,000-calorie pasta if you want, or you can get a grilled chicken sandwich. Like, what? <laughs> like, this is like a good place. I actually think if a young gentleman is inviting a young lady on a date, yeah, and, and I mean this in a true sense, like a college kid's date, it's a great restaurant to take a date to because – you don't know her food preferences. You don't know, you know, budget wise, all the things. It's friendly in all those ways. 
and it's usually in the neighborhood. You don't have to drive far. It's in a safe place. What is the problem? <laughs> no, shout out no. to Cheesecake Factory. I'm taking, I'm taking the, I'm taking the next date I go on. We're going to the Cheesecake Factory. I used to work in Bal- right in downtown Baltimore, and there was a Cheesecake Factory right in the Inner Harbor area. And I always used to walk by it and sometimes go. And the line was always out the door. You had to have a pager to wait for it. And exactly. then, and then I noticed. Every cheesecake factory I ever saw had a line and had pagers and had people waiting. And so when I was working, I I was working uh, at TD Ameritrade and I wanted to play around with our platform. I was like, I'm buying some cheesecake factory stock on the on the sole rationale being that it's just always crowded. (laughs) If you want to see a crowded restaurant, come to Atlanta, Georgia on a Sunday after church and pull up to the cheesecake. Right. Just do it. Or P.F. Chang's. Usually right next to each other. It'll be a packed house, and it's family-friendly, budget-friendly, good dining in a safe place that then you can go to the mall and buy some sneakers afterwards. Shout out to the cheesecake. Yeah, I'm sure there's a cheesecake factory in Philly, which is where Laura, our guest, is. And we talk a lot about Philly, but also a lot about uh, her work as GC of Civis Analytics, her voter protection work, her time at Comcast, Latham. Really interesting career arc for her. Yeah, man. She's an interesting lady. And I really appreciate, like, I don't know if the right word is activism. I don't know if that's the word. But definitely, like, she she's going to talk about it. But she made a bold move in the middle of her career and yeah. went out and did something interesting and powerful for the world. And then, I, you know, we talk about how that made her better at her current job as the GC of Civis. But, like... I really appreciate the boldness of the move and I, and we'll talk, you Me know, too. Comcast is a support of that decision. Like we, I think she's such a good example for us to think carefully about how we spend our cut, like our total time in our careers. Right. Because it's very easy to get caught up in the, now I'm working toward the next promotion or the next job or the next area of responsibility or whatever you know all these benchmarks and she she kind of bucked that and said okay cool that's all fantastic but i'm gonna take a break and i'm gonna do this other thing and it worked out for her career she's a gc now yeah <laughs> like it's, yeah. So it's like it's, it's it's really cool it's not like it, it hurt her it actually accelerated like her advancement so i think it's a good example of you know being courageous and being bold and it playing out better than i think she even imagined it's a great story yeah i think people it will like a cool it star. it is a cool star all right here it is uh, all right, now I'm going to do the Tech GC because I, I almost always forget. <laughs> all right, Friday, November 3rd, we are the Data Protection Breakfast Club, and we're brought to you by the fine friends of Tech GC. Tech GC. Yes. Tech GC. Tech GC. Love those guys. <laughs> Love those guys. <laughs> When we whisper tech GC, is this like a sexy voice or is this a creepy voice? I'm always wondering how this lands with people. Uh, Well, comment, comment below. How does it land? (laughs) Please don't comment. Please don't comment. Uh, All right. Here we are. That's a great way to start this, Pedro. What's your video resolution? Oh, There's no book to man. a podcast ever. <laughs> What's your video resolution? What's your video res, man? I have no idea. I have no idea. All right. Well, uh, shit. Sorry. Here we are. We're here. <laughs> We're here with Laura Belmont. Uh, how are you, Laura? Hi, how are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me. I think my resolution looks a little bit better than both of yours yeah, right now. Andy, I'm, I'm like... coming through clear. 
And he looks like he's using the Logitech webcam from 1997. You remember the little round? So you on me? You do also. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yes. I don't know what's yeah. going on there. Like, what yeah. is something's up here? The, the, I recently showed my kids the old Carmen San Diego on YouTube mm-hmm. because there's a reboot on Netflix, which they really like. And we showed them the old, like the one with the acapella group. And it looks like your video right now. It was that old. <laughs> that it was bad? like, and they, we, yeah, they were like, what's wrong with the video? We had Dad? the same thing last night. We were choosing a movie and I was showing them a trailer for Free Willy and it's not adjusted. Willy, and it was oh, the, yeah. I know we're hitting, we did Mighty Ducks instead. And that they Free had Willy. like pixels were great. They had updated it, but yeah. Free Willy <laughs> and Carmen San Diego. This is it. We're, <laughs> off, we're off to the races here. We're off to a fly. Okay. So before we start, then before we get substantive, you got me curious now, like, when you think back to your childhood and you like woke up on the weekend or whatever, like what, Laura, what were you watching? You know, my, pa- uh, yeah. my parents were like, we need to sleep so you can watch a little uh, bit of TV. In the morning. Saved by the Bell. That was a big one. Love it. I think yeah. Saturday morning, Saved by the Bell. I was like the TGIF era also. So the Friday night, Full House. Full House. Into Saved by the Bell, Saturday mornings. Um, yeah, more of those shows, I think, than real cartoons. It was Full House into Family Matters, correct? Yeah, excuse me. Yes, the yeah. lineup. And then I think the nine o'clock hour was step by step. Uh, I forget what was at nine thirty. I probably had to go to bed by then. A good one. Yeah, Pedro, what'd you watch? Um, my Saturday mornings. It depends on the age, man. But like the younger Saturday mornings, a lot of Ninja Turtles, man. A lot of okay. Ninja Turtles, and um, that kind of graduated into X Men and some of that type of deal. Mm-hmm. And then for sure, Saved by the Bell. I remember, I vividly remember NBC Saturday mornings having Saved by the Bell. I and mm-hmm. and some other yeah. show too, but I can see it. Hang right time. Here. Do you remember Hang Time? Maybe it was Hang Time. Yes. Wow. Yes. And NBA Inside <laughs> Stuff was my show. I'm gonna just put that out there. Ahmad Rashad. I really liked. Um, I really liked the Jetsons. I was really. In, I know that's like older school. And he used to read the newspaper when he was a boy on Saturday mornings. <laughs> The Jetsons, did the puzzle. What, what year is the Jetsons? Isn't it like now, right? Isn't that like crazy? But they're saying like, this is what the world's going to be in yeah. 2030. And it's robots yeah, and flying right, cars. Pedro. And like, Flintstones theory? Have you guys heard this theory? I don't think no. so. Oh, that the Jetsons and the Flintstones are actually on the same timeline. And that mm-hmm. the rich people of that timeline lived above the clouds because they had all this wealth and all this stuff. And then the Flintstones oh. were actually living at the same time. But they were the people who got left behind after the apocalypse. So they were living wow. in the, like in primitive land and caves and stuff. You haven't heard this? There's all this. Yeah. That's so dark. People have compiled all this <laughs> evidence to prove it too, man. Like, like, wow. like proving that they had like. I don't know, man. Google it. It's worth the greed. Taking a different turn uh, this morning. (laughs) An alien does show up on the Flintstones. Remember the great kazoo? The little green guy did show up. I'm telling you, man, there's compelling evidence out there that (laughs) Hanna-Barbera and whoever were like, we're going to make this show and it's all on the same timeline. And it, well, there and goes it, the rest of my Friday down that oh, Reddit rabbit hole. Man, listen, man. You you don't have any work to do. No, not at all. It's a Friday. All right. So right now, Laura, you're the GC of Civis Analytics. We met through mutual friend Aaron, uh, who's an incredible uh, person and regulatory lawyer at Latham, uh, where you worked as well, doing similar work. Mm -hmm. But I want to go back to the time that you left a job to go do voter protection work, because that's a really interesting, like, pivotal moment in your career, I think. And uh, I really like the way you um, kind of approach things like that. Sure. So what what 
what happened there? Sure. So in, um, I started at Comcast. I started my career at Latham. And then I, um, after about six years, moved to Comcast. Uh, so in Philly area, doing compliance work, anti-corruption, international trade. And in 2019, I started kind of thinking ahead to the 2020 election. And I, I knew I wanted to get involved. And I really thought it had to be more than just a volunteer capacity, right? Like anytime we try to volunteer, we have jobs and we have children and we have life that gets in the way. And so I knew I wanted to participate in a more meaningful way than I had in 2016, which was phone banking and writing postcards. And so I talked to my husband and I said, well, what do you think if I try to go do some election work? And he was supportive. So starting in, I'd say probably early 2020, I started emailing a lot of organizations like, do you want a free lawyer? How can I help? How can I get involved? Uh, And I started telling other people in this space that I was interested. And uh, I didn't hear back from most organizations. I think after being in the space, it's really hard, I think, to manage volunteers. So I think that's part of it. Um, But over the summer, a friend had sent me a job listing for uh, voter protection regional director in Pennsylvania. So I'm outside Philly. Uh, And I applied and had some connections to the woman who was the director of KU for the entire program. I met with her and then um, was offered a role. So I was at Comcast, though, at the time. And I was, I think at that point, willing to say, okay, if they're not supportive of the leave, I would stop working there because I just felt like, I was curious like yeah. how that would go yeah like were I, they were they supportive of that they were uh, but I was ready I think I kind of came to the decision with my husband that if they're not supportive I will leave my job and go do this work because I just felt really strongly about doing it um, but I approached my boss as the chief compliance officer and said look like I feel really strongly about doing this work would you support a leave it's probably three or four months Um, and she asked, you know, are you planning on coming back? Which I think was a real question. You know, a lot of people get involved in elections because they want to get involved in the administration. Um, and it was always my intent to come back. I, I'm in Philly. I wasn't planning on moving to DC. I just felt really strongly in that moment in time of getting involved. And so, um, she was supportive of it, went to the general counsel who approved it, which I recognize and I'm really grateful for. This isn't something that's like a common thing to approve, you know, unpaid leaves of absences that aren't for a medical reason or for maternity. Um, so I went, I did that work for about three and a half months. I came back to Comcast the day after the election was certified uh, and just kind of started going about my day to day back of the organization. And then um, about five months later, Civis called. And um, what had happened was during the very last few days of the election before they took all of our computers back, Somebody reached out and said, look, you know, if you want to put your resume in this, you know, Google Drive folder, we'll share it with friends of the campaign. So I thought, why not? Um, You know, I was throwing my resume into a folder full of like young organizers, field organizers. Like, what do they want with a relatively old lawyer Um, thinking, you know, nobody's even going to see this. Um, But Civis did. And uh, that's in large part. Our CEO, Dan Wagner, was uh, Obama's chief analytics officer in 2012. So as connections to the campaigns, and they saw my resume um, in the folder and reached out. And I guess the the rest is history. So when you came back to Comcast, I was curious about this. From going off and doing that work and then coming back to Comcast, how did you feel? Did you come back and feel like, you know, is is this meaningful? 
oh, work that I'm doing now. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I really enjoyed my work I was doing at Comcast, though I have to say. So I did. Not that it's not interesting. Yeah, exactly. You know, just the juxtaposition right. between those two. And it just such this like emotional high. I mean, I've never worked that many more hours un- under that much stress um, in my whole life. I mean, my sister-in-law moved in with us for a few weeks um, so that she could help with the kids just because. And this was all remote during the pandemic, but the hours were just so intense. Um, so there was that kind of like coming down from that. Um, but also I think after I joined, they asked if I could help, um, update the debt collection like program, um, which, cause I just general compliance and organization. And I, it was one of those like, Ooh, going from an election to debt collection felt like a big, a big difference. Um, but I still, yeah, jumped right back in, you know, the work was there as anybody who goes on leaves knows. Uh, but I felt that, you know, I felt a little tug. I can't say I, I didn't of thinking, should I be doing something that feels more purposeful uh, and more meaningful? What was your mental and internal intention when you took the leave? Like, what did you, I, I know voter protection broadly, but yeah. like, what was your goal? Like, what did you set out to do? I think for me, part of it was I'd say I wanted to make sure, right, like voter protection to me means making sure everybody's voice is heard and counted. So, and again, that's taking it outside of a partisan issue of just making sure people truly understood this new law. Pennsylvania had just enacted a new law with vote by mail, um, that people understood it so that they could get to the polls. Um, but I think also I had this personal pull of feeling like I felt like I felt like I had to contribute. Um, and part of that goes back to, you know, like many corporate lawyers, I went to law school wanting to be a civil rights lawyer, right? And here I am. And then I was at Latham. And I think I struggled with for a very long time, enjoying and being in a part of the profession where I wasn't like contributing to the greater good. And so I think part of it for me was being like, I have all these talents, I want to be able to use them in a meaningful way. So I felt like I had to check that box for me as well. In addition to like, okay, let's make sure people know how to vote and where to vote. Um, of like doing that for, for me, right? Like as one person, I didn't change the election, but I felt like, okay, I can rest easy now. I did what I could. Do you guys think that's a common line of conversation in especially large law firms? Like is the work we're doing moving the needle? What needle? Probably only, yeah. I mean, like, the gro- the bro- the needle of the world, <laughs> you know, like like making like, the world better. I thought this are we many- making the world yeah, better like- at Latham and Watkins? Is that what you're asking? When you say it like that, the answer is literally the answer. Laura just said the right answer, which is sometimes they are. Yeah. A lot of times, I'm not picking on Latham. Like, yeah, all law firms. Yeah. Like sometimes at the law firm, you're doing the you're doing the people's work, man. Other time at the law firm. You are not doing the people's work. And the same goes for corporations, okay? I mean, I mean, the people would say where I work is very controversial, right? I mean, I have my point of view about, you know, communications and giving people free access to each other and information. Other people would say, you know, Meta is doing, you know, what is it? Surveillance capitalism and, you know, manipulation and all this other garbage. So, like, which I don't, you know, I mean, there are challenges, but I don't agree that's what Meta set out to do or what Meta is intending to do, right? And so, like, um, I think the answer to your question is complicated. I will say this, though. It is really hard to reconcile profiteering with. I want to be really careful here. Like, 
the the advancing of profits aggressively with the intention to create harmony and justice. Those two things have a a built-in tension. And so really thoughtful people can navigate those and figure out how to find a balance that's reasonable. Unfortunately, I don't think that happens as often as I wish it would. That's my take. I definitely think it's something people struggle with. I know I did. I said, you know, I set out wanting to be a civil rights lawyer. My younger sister is profoundly disabled. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to do disability rights work. Like, this is what I'm going to do. It's so personally meaningful to me. Um, You know, got into the law in part because I was like a smart, square (laughs) type A kid who liked to read and write. So like, why not, right? Get into this profession. Um, And then I got to Latham and I started liking the type of work that I was practicing in. And it was really hard for me to think like, wow, I'm making money and I'm liking this work. And it's not for this cause that I thought I was going to be this huge advocate for. And it took a really long time for me to feel comfortable with that and not to feel like I was selling out or abandoning this type of work. You know, I think that's in part why so many of us keep really healthy pro bono practices or other volunteer work. Um, but it made me realize like, I really like the law. I like this type of practice. I liked the regulatory work that I was doing and I had to give myself permission to say like, that's okay to do that and to not be serving some greater good, uh, or to do it in my volunteer work or my pro bono work and not my, my day job. That's a big realization for a lot of people. There's nothing wrong with doing something you like. Right. I know if it's not some sort of like big pillar of like the schematic goodness, right? I mean, I think there is something wrong with doing something evil. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't give a say. shit if you like it. If it's right. evil, you're a dirtbag. <laughs> but like, if you're just doing something that like sits in the syntax of life, right? Whatever that is, um, there's if you do it honestly and with integrity, like in a sense, you actually are contributing significantly to the greater good. So like, I I think it's a lot of our day-to-day lives are wrapped in, um, you know, like systematic bureaucracy. We're lawyers. This is what lawyers do, right? Like we get into the weeds of the administration of things, um, which is not always, you know, it, it doesn't always care, put a halo over our heads, but that doesn't mean we get horns either. Okay. Like it just means we're going about our business, trying to do the best job we can in whatever space we're in. And like, there is goodness in that. I think that's really important to recognize because we're not just that we might go home and be great fathers and mothers and great members of our churches and great volunteers and whatever good brothers and sisters like there, there, there's more to us than just the job if you can incorporate sort of like giving back into your work fantastic but if you can't so that that's okay man pay taxes you're doing good <laughs> i think there's there's all the things you just said and laura you touched on this like there's also just like w- what you do in your life and you know, we talk about this at home a lot you know you, we're raising kids here and part of that entails how you, how they interact with the world and how they give back to the world and what they do and what how we talk about um how we spend our share money and how we talk about how we take action in the community and how we show up in the community and how we show up for people 
uh, and for causes and things that are happening around the world and letting them know what's happening around the world. And that includes when they get older, traveling and because we can and showing them there's a huge world out there. And and so, Pedro, you're I'm sort of just broadening your your point to include uh, more. I mean, I just think it's more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Andy, I love the the way you frame it because talking about parenting, um, I know you know we've had conversations about this before too, of like being a GC and being a parent and um, navigating. Right, you use that word, and that's what I say too. Like, it's our job to help navigate these like beautiful souls. <laughs> through this yeah. world and to teach them how to make decisions on their own and to explain incredibly complicated and difficult questions and issues to them, right? Questions that don't even have answers. Um, and it's so true. I mean, that's, you know, I think I, I know you do, I do others like parent out loud. And I think that's incredibly important also for our profession. And I think that that's something we're seeing a big change from of kind of like, oh yeah, family exists, but we don't see them and we don't talk about them at work to saying, no, this is a massive part, the biggest part of who I am. And people I'm should know about it. I'm a big fan of that. I'm a big fan of that change. Mm-hmm. Sure. So we are um, a data analytics organization and we have our core product is our Civis platform, which is a data warehouse and analytics workbench. Um, And then we also provide additional data services. Um, And our client base is primarily nonprofit and advocacy organizations. And what we're really helping these organizations do is solve their person level problems. Um, So if we're talking about nonprofits and advocacy organizations, helping them to better understand their first party data so they can target fundraising efforts and engagement efforts. Um, So that's, you know, just one piece of of what we do, but kind of the, the biggest piece when you joined, what was the biggest challenge you saw? Like, are the biggest two? Sure. So I think um, maybe pursuing too many different types of products and services. I think a lot of organizations that offer services see this where, you know, we had a software product, we had services that um, we, a lot of times with the clients were coming to us and saying, here's our problem. Can you solve it? We would tailor a response to them as opposed to leading with, here's the problem that we can solve. So I think getting into a lot of custom services and really bespoke work, as opposed to kind of leading with our products and productizing that service. Um, And just wanting to solve a lot of different problems for people, which is like a great, (laughs) see the dog, a great (laughs) response and reaction to want to have. But as an organization that's trying to scale, it's something you really have to be concerned about focusing on those core products and productizing your services. And not for nothing, but it's, it's hard to, it's hard to make revenue on those. Mm -hmm. And you, because you, you need revenue to in general, right. but also to, to, to your point, to scale and offer more services to your, mm-hmm. your customers and heavy services. I've been in these businesses where like, you want to do it. You want to stand them up. You want to help. It's really complicated. Right. Um, and, and it's hard to make margin right. on it, frankly. And so we really have kind of pivoted to focus on our software platform, right? Which is repeatable. And there's still implementation services and services that go along with that, but really leading with the software uh, and seeing where else maybe as kind of more ancillary products or services, as opposed to leading with the research yeah. services or consulting services. You remember like 
what year are we in? This is 2023, right? <laughs> you remember like 2016, 2015, like the buzzword around the world, well, around the tech world was SaaS. Remember that? Remember that? Like everything Big was SaaS data. and cloud and SaaS and cloud. I still feel like it's that. Has it changed? I don't is know. I feel like AI <laughs> is the word of the day. Oh, AI, yes, in the last year like, for uh, sure. And I feel like last year was NFT and whatever, but like... <laughs> um and web three and just uh, made up shit fair. that is, you know, whatever. but like okay, SAS. So like, let me ask you guys, cause you both have worked and been GCs at SAS platforms. Um, did SAS live up to its promise? Is it, is it better than what we had before overall? I know it is in many w- specific ways, but like, are we in a better place or, or are corporations suffering from the same thing ordinary people are suffering from, which is like subscription fatigue and exhaustion. Can the answer be both? I mean, I do think sure, there's subscription fatigue yeah. and, you know, a certain element of living up to it. I think, you know, we're very aware as a vendor and we've been doing it with our vendors, right? When budgets are tight, people look at what are, who are our vendors? What are our products? And what's, you know, is this a need to have software or not? Or could we do this in some other way? And so, right, our job is to explain to people that, like, maybe it's not need to have, but this is certainly making your life easier and better by using our product. I think people lump, so I agree with that uh, as well. And I think people lump SaaS and cloud together in -hmm. some ways because SaaS is delivered via cloud. So in one sense, if it's cloud, it's massively successful because Mm -hmm. it's everything. Everything we do, look at Gmail, G Suite, Mm -hmm. everything cloud-based, AWS, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) name your cloud. So that's really successful. In terms of SaaS, it's a mixed bag, Pedro. Like Salesforce is an unmitigated success in terms of the CRM space. Uh, that basically defines SaaS in my mind. I mean, you look at look at some of these major SaaS players, ServiceNow, like just major SaaS companies. But I think where SaaS falls down is in the venture investment in every single idea that can be delivered in a subscription way that focuses only on kind of like recurring revenue models. And so I think there's a overcorrection on things being sort of almost required to be SaaS and have SaaS financial metrics Mm -hmm. to, to get investment into scale. And so the result is as you noted, Laura, fatigue, or you had both noted, fatigue. Like there's a lot of tools out there. You have a lot of choice and a lot of them are either the same or all bad <laughs> or or don't, or, or like too niche mm-hmm. and don't accomplish uh, enough. So I think it's a really nuanced question, Pedro. I think overall it's a successful concept, but I think, um, if I, when I'm thinking about how we spend money, I'm thinking about spending on the things that I know will scale. So you, you don't necessarily take as many risks on SaaS platforms because you, you may or may not use them that frequently. Mm-hmm. Try to take a risk on something where you see value and you see like forward looking value in it. Let, 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 you know, I come from Oracle and Salesforce, right? That's where I sort of figured out how to do the job that I do, which I'm very grateful to both companies and learned a lot there. But let me give you my thought because I, I actually think like it hasn't lived up to the promise. I think it's lived up to the promise of selling. 
itself and scale and everybody using it. And obviously there's wide adoption of SaaS tools all over the place. Salesforce is a good example. But what were the promises of SaaS? I'm going to, you know, like, what were they, right? Like, I think the first one is, is that it's low cost and easy. I don't think SaaS hit that mark. Like, rolling out Salesforce is neither cheap nor easy. <laughs> and I'm not picking on Salesforce. Insert SaaS offering. It doesn't matter, right? Self-service, right? Like, no, that's not a thing. You end up paying all these additional fees to get mm -hmm. the SaaS vendors to help you do all the things. So that promise never really realized for me. Here's my favorite one. This is plug and play. You don't need an IT department. We know that's bullshit, right? So like, <laughs> that's not true, right? Like, this is not like a thing that actually is even within the realm of reality. So those are like just like three examples mm -hmm. that come off the top of my head. Wait a minute. I just pa I want to brief pushback. I think you're correct on enterprise. I don't know that that's the case with every SaaS well, platform. I don't, there's I don't a think lot so either. Of, We're speaking there's in generalities. There's a lot of plug and play. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of plug and play that works. So like your your directional point, I, I certainly agree. And I definitely agree in enterprise. There's no plug and play SaaS in enterprise. There is none. There Zero. Is, there, like there, yeah. there's all this other stuff, right? Like there's other stuff. And then I think the last one, the, the, the trickiest one is customization. Because if you build a homegrown thing, it comes with all the problems that, that we know what those problems mm -hmm. are. But you can make it to cater specifically to whatever your thing is. Right. With with SaaS, like there's just not as much ability to do those things. So these are the things that I these are the areas where I think SaaS falls very short. Let me tell you some areas where I think it falls <laughs> it has exceeded expectations. Okay. One, you know what it costs generally, and you just pay that fee. And so it's like a understood there isn't a lot of cost sprawl. Right. It's expensive, but it's not one of those costs where you mm -hmm. just it's unpredictable. You know what the subscription costs, you know what the support costs, you pay it and you know what you get. So I think in that regard, it's 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 pretty helpful. And two, like it does reduce hardware load on your company or organization. Right. So then you don't need hardware expertise as much hardware expertise sitting around, which is really expensive and hard to hire for. So I think like in those areas, for sure. SaaS has delivered on its promises, but like in some of the usability areas, I'm not so sure. Man. You raise an interesting point because when we talk about competition in this space, when you mentioned kind of building your own homegrown tool, I think what we're seeing a lot of isn't looking and comparing us against other products, but it's saying, well, what if the teams right now, organizations are having more data analytics, data scientists in-house of people building their own tool for those very reasons of saying, can we customize it? You know, right. And it's trying to say, well, you could, if you had all of this knowledge and all of this time. Um, but it is, I think finding, I, I mentioned still services of finding that middle ground of like, can, how do, can we tweak this? for you? Like, can this be tweaked in a way that is still from an implementation perspective is going to give you what you need without being a huge lift for an organization? Um, I think, you know, we'll do more of that just as a services and data science um, SaaS company, right? It's not just like, here you go, because we have to implement it to your point. Um, but it is, I think, a, looking at the in-house teams, I think I see that as, you know, some of our biggest competition right now. Is that like you know what? A, what am I? It, one of the most sorry, Andy. One of the most no, interesting SaaS stores to me, and I don't know if this is really SaaS, but I think it is. Is Shopify, right? Like, you know, I think Toby ran like a ski shop somewhere. I think that's, I think it was a ski shop, and like they didn't, they couldn't find a good point of sale solution. Like they couldn't find a good way to sell their stuff online. Like they just couldn't do it, and so they built a thing. And now it's Shopify, right? Like, I think that is like a really 
cool i mean i am like hyper simplifying here but like <laughs> they built a cool online sales platform for themselves to sell ski equipment or whatever and now it's shopify right like i love that story right like it's 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 a cool story to tell but also like it was an interesting you talk you guys talk about scale right like it was an interesting example of if you make something great you can commoditize it right direct um, corollary is the slack story exact same story they developed the thing to chat internally and they had another product and the other product wasn't really and somebody <laughs> was like this is this other tool is great we use it internally yeah here it is yeah, yeah. they solved that problem how did Super interesting. get started yeah so I briefly mentioned, so our CEO was the chief analytics officer for Obama's campaign, and they were really the first campaign that was using big data, right? This is back in 2012. And so after the campaign, um, Dan was approached by Eric Schmidt, who had been an advisor to the campaign and said, look, like, create an organization using these concepts. So take this outside of the political space and help other organizations solve people level problems using big data. And so Dan and others from the campaign, I think started in like Dan's apartment building. Um, and so this came out of that. And so part of that is sort of how I think the, the client base that we have stemming from, right, starting in the space, these are the people that we knew in advocacy organizations and nonprofits um, and then expanding into public sector and also profit organizations, but came from that of, okay, take this data, take these issues and apply them outside of political. Um, but right, it's very different now than it was. I mean, it was like back 10 plus years ago, it was the start of it. And we are seeing um, so many more organizations getting into this space. So I think it's trying to think innovatively, like how do we, how do we meet the needs of now? with more competition. And so it's looking at, okay, we're, you know, a data warehouse and services company that does a great job with first party data. And if cookies are going away, right, first party data becomes that much more important. So thinking about how to meet the moment right now, but the problems are the same, right? Like people need to know how to, how to engage audiences, who to target, when to target. And that's the same problem for, you know, if it's a campaign, if it's nonprofits, if it's an organization that wants to know where they should be playing certain ads. Um, and so those, you know, right, like that tool can solve all of those problems across different industries. You've had to dig in a lot on data privacy and data issues that maybe hadn't come up. Maybe they'd come up at Comcast for you, but probably not nearly as much. How'd you No, I mean, Comcast. So our, our law department at Comcast was bigger than all of Civis. So a really large organization. <laughs> and with that, right, like come specialists. So um, I was still a specialist while I was at Comcast, and we had a dedicated privacy team. So I was on the compliance team. Um, and some of our operations folks did privacy compliance, but it wasn't a space that I was like, actively participating in. Um, I wish I paid a little bit more attention in those like CLEs about data privacy when they came up. But so I knew broad strokes, uh, I, but I, I really had to dig in once I got to Civis. And there is also a difference where the data collection is something that happens like in the course of the product and the services you provide versus like the data is the service that you provide, right? Like it's not just we're collecting your viewing habits and things like that as we're providing you with cable or internet. It's like we are providing you with data and data services. A hundred percent. It's, it's uh, 
doing privacy and product work on on the product is always different than working for a company that just has privacy as a thing. Sorry, go ahead, Pedro. No, yeah, no problem. Um, on on sticking with the cloud theme, so I'm I'm guessing that you guys run your platform on one of the big cloud platforms, like one of the infrastructure AWS. platforms. AWS. AWS. Okay, cool. Everybody runs on AWS. Well, not everybody, but <laughs> lots of people run on AWS or Azure or you know Google Cloud or whatever. Those are, I guess, those are the big three. Maybe Oracle Cloud is in there too. Um, the, the, have you found? Are you are you the first GC of service? I'm not. Um, okay. There was a GC that started, and then there was a period of time kind of in between without a GC. But you're early. You're early GC. You're early GC, right? Like, yeah, I, I like to think I've built a lot of. Yeah, it sounds like. Let me ask you about like <laughs> not not specifically the relationship with Amazon itself, but like the yeah. relationship for uh, an organization like yours that runs a platform on somebody else's infrastructure, which is not a unique scenario these days. Andy, I'm sure you guys do too. Um, um, What's that like? What's the relationship with that vendor like, whether it's Amazon, Google, whoever? Um, is it tense? Is it like, how does that play out? Because your whole business runs on, like, the, like there's a lot of reliability there, right? And and I, I'm just curious because I've actually never worked at a small startup that mm-hmm. has to deal with the other side, right? Like, what does that question. feel like as the GC? Because I feel like the stakes are pretty high if something goes sideways there. Right, absolutely. I mean, as a data company, as an organization that's storing other organizations data, right? Like data protection is the most important thing for our organization is keeping that data confidential and secure. Uh, I think we have a really great relationship with AWS. Uh, In large part, we recently, I think, have dedicated a lot more time to building that relationship. So just recently, a couple months ago, we got listed on the AWS marketplace, uh, which means kind of as that, right, like you can go in the marketplace, buy service platform. Um, and it's, I think that has really helped because before that, I'd say uh, there wasn't a lot of direct interaction with them, right? Like when you're coming and you're negotiating contracts or you're going back and forth on terms, but for given how much trust we have to have uh, in the security of their platform, this has felt, I mean, just so much better recently um, of delving into the partnership more and getting them to also be really excited about us. So going through the partnership programs, and even if it's talking more about our data security program so that they understand it and them sharing more information about theirs. So I'd say in the last six months, we've really increased the partnership. But before that, it was right, like, they're the big guy, and we're this little one, and you come into negotiations, and right, who, what's your position of power coming from? So I think with this partnership recently, it's helped a lot. Also, just right having points of contact. Sometimes when you contract with these huge organizations, it takes forever to get an answer or to get right your issues to be surfaced. And so it's just given us a much more direct line if and when issues come up to be able to talk to our partnership folks. Um, and they know that we're trusting them too as being part of their marketplace. That's a great question. That's and that's um a lot of that is my experience too. AWS did something really interesting like eight or ten years ago. Pedro, they started putting people having people show up for office hours at companies. Hmm. So you'd be like around and there'd just be an AWS person around. Anybody, out. anybody got questions? They might bring coffee. They might they might be like any anyone have questions about like 
functionality or how things work. You just got to know people. And I That's thought cool. that was brilliant. Like, you know, I, I think they probably went to people that were consuming or not necessarily like spending a lot of money, but using a lot of compute. Compute, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, at a, at a, it was this data zoo. So at a DSP that was doing a lot of like real time volume, I think they recognized um, people that were sort of pushing boundaries with their software a little bit. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a really interesting move. There's zero contract leverage, but I think at the end of the day, like, <laughs> It's mostly just about the relationship. Yeah. And Laura made a really good point. Can I call you up? Like, do I have a lawyer on the other end? I mean, I work really hard. We we have a partnership with Snowflake. I work really hard and our owners, you know, to have lawyers that I can just say, got to bounce something off you. I have a quick question. You know, I need something. They need something from me. How how quickly can we get that? So a little harder to get at a, at a GCP AWS level, but I think you can get it. And I think that really moves the needle so interesting to me like speaking about homegrown products like at aws like amazon just started building its own infrastructure and then they're like this is so fucking good we're gonna sell it and now it's like the largest you know i mean it's the biggest cloud company on earth right like it's insanity how like good ideas can really do really well so this is an example of the same thing and and it's just can we come up with a good idea so we can get rid of it? <laughs> well, I don't know if it's, I don't know if, if Shopify runs on How do we do lawyering as a certain, like, sat lawyering can we, I think I mean, those platforms exist now, right? Yeah. There's a going on right now. Okay, God, we got to figure out how to allow AI to, like, not be in the unauthorized practice of law situation. And, like, let's just go. <laughs> and just include it in the name, too, so investors will be interested. That's right. Yeah, in that's right. yeah you have to That's include right. AI. AI. Atticus Finch AI. Let's go. Let's get paid. <laughs> If somebody uses that, I'm saying it right now. If yeah, somebody uses that, I said it first, I want my money. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, let me ask you about Philadelphia, and then and then yeah. Uh, so, okay, we we had um, another lawyer from Philadelphia on several years ago on the podcast, and my okay. question to her was: Are cheesesteaks good? That's a good question. I mean, I'll start ans- with. I will start that answer by saying. I am of the belief if you're including bread and meat and cheese, like how could it be bad? So like right. that is my starting point. <laughs> um, yeah, they're good. But I will say my preferred Philly sandwich is the roast pork yes. sandwich. Denix. Roast pork. Denix. Right. Roast pork, broccoli rob, and provolone. Like that to me that's is really beat, the Philly. Man. You come, like that's the sandwich that I would get. The cheesesteaks are great, but I think people are overlooking the roast pork sandwich. So that's <laughs> that's my vote. Me too. For Philly for Philly sandwiches. And Have you can't you go had... wrong with like a hoagie. I know people call them <laughs> thing, other things. Hoagie, great. But like a real... A Pedro, real hoagie, have you had the roast pork? Ever? I'm Cuban, man. Kind of question. No, I mean, not, not, not like... Not have you had roast pork. Come on. The, the the like the road pork Philly signature sandwich. Yes, I yeah, have. Yeah. It's not as good as a Cuban sandwich. Okay, I'm gonna just put that out there right now. But it is a good sandwich or a good. Yeah. I don't know. I don't. I don't know if the word sandwich is inappropriate. People from Philly can get mad at me, but it is good. Um, it's delicious, man. You add look. I love pork, man. You add pork to something. It's gonna. I think pork is a very flavorful meat that doesn't require a lot of a TLC to slow cooking. You know, so like it's pretty hard to get it wrong. To Laura's point, but like if you get it really right. It's um, um it's a, it's a mouthful. 
Um, and I do love a good cheesesteak, though. A good Philly cheesesteak, man, with some <laughs> shitty-ass whiz on top and some, like, <laughs> onions and, like, some soggy bread. That is a delicious situation. They that are is, delicious. I mean, and I, there's situation, man. a lot like, of variety, right? Like, people talk about the two main ones, the competing ones. You, I think if you branch out, yeah, maybe don't go to the – I won't even name them because I don't want people well, to – Pats like, and Gino's? Pats yeah. and Gino's. Okay. I was going to say, I don't want people to tell – I'm not saying those are bad, but I feel like there's – there are better sandwiches yeah, in I like Philadelphia. It's fine. Uh, Gino's is fine too. I like Steve's Prince. I, you know that that's like my. I know that's like maybe a little bit obscure, but that's like my favorite. I love a good Philly cheesesteak. There's nothing wrong with that. I can't eat bread anymore, and it's yeah. been like oh. years now. But it's okay. Like I'm, um, I'm I guarantee you, Pat's does not have a gluten free bun. That Pat, Pat's does not have a gluten free. <laughs> I think entering Pat's involves absorption of gluten. Yeah, but like, yes. that's, that's, that's cool. Same thing with Cuban this, sandwiches, man. I haven't had a Cuban sandwich in two and a half years, wow. which oh. is a catastrophe. Well, can't you make one? I, I feel like my family, Italian family, we have, you know, like your all of your pasta with bread on the side like oh, we gosh, it's so all good. all the gluten at one time. Laura, i've never understood that gluten. why 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 is bread often served with pasta just like to it get this i'll say sauce, talking about i know but you just the had the pasta <laughs> you bread are not the same they're very different you're They're frustrating me, Andy. I'm gonna block you, dude. This is why don't you put like the olive oil with yeah, some salt and pepper, dude. some red pepper flakes. So let me say something. Let me say something. Number one, I wasn't asking are cheesesteaks good because I don't like them. I'm just asking because I think it's like a pretty, a pretty like simple food, and I'm always interested in how much hype it gets because it is a pretty simple food. Simple food can be great. It can be like great. Pizza. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pizza yeah. is three ingredients. Yeah. You know, so why are Philly? It, why are Philly? If they have the cheese steaks and they have these great uh, Denix pork, pork sandwich, and uh, why are they so mad all the time? Why are Philly sports fans so mad? This is not because their sports teams suck. No, oh. so, they're mad. Uh oh, that was fight. That was fight. I'm like, having a hard time leaning into this conversation because I'm still processing the NLCS. Like, I know the World Series ended by now. I'm still getting over that game seven and the game the Braves. six. And, Do you know yes, how which was, was great. Oh, man. Years in a row. I know. Well, what do you think, um, though? I'm, I'm interested in the psychology, though. Like, wh- I don't think Philly's mad. I think that is like an outsider's perception on Philly. So I grew up in Overbrook in West Philly, left for some period of time, went to D.C., um, I think the people in Philadelphia are some of the nicest people I've ever met. Uh, in Until that, they go to a ball game. Okay. Well, so people will just engage, right? Like it's a community. So I feel like it's always, I get a lot of huns. I get a lot of, right? Just like chatting with people. I think it's a very open community. With sports, like I get decades ago, we threw some batteries. Um, I think people are holding on to that. Like your Braves just threw trash on the field, yeah, but that's because you guys were doing were, the, the tomahawk to mock my team. <laughs> Which, by the way, I hate the tomahawk generally. I, I think it's yes. bad. Every, we should get rid of it. But it doesn't matter. The entire stadium in Philadelphia was doing tomahawk mocking the Braves. That's why you guys got trash thrown at you. Like, uh, you know what I mean? So I think maybe, I mean, this, I'm sure people have debated this for forever, right? Like, I remember growing up, Philadelphia had this, Amtrak had a campaign and it was spend the night in Philly. And it was like a grown man in pajamas with a teddy bear so like i that was not great marketing but it was, this, it was this idea of you were going to only come to philly if you were passing 
through New York Uh and DC. And so I think there is a sense of like Philly getting overshadowed by your New York and your DC. And I think Philly is really coming into its own now, like this amazing food scene that we've had, but just the great museums. And I think organization, right? Like even your Comcast of having such a presence here really help and saying like, okay, no, the city is great in its own right. But I think there is probably so think, a little bit of that chip. You think things have gotten better? I mean, there there was always like the old veteran stadium. There was a jail in there. Like, I mean, like yeah. or a, or a jail cell. I mean, like, <laughs> right. that's, yep. that's yeah. the trope, right? That's the trope. I mean, it was real. It's, but that's the, it was true. It was it's real. True. Yeah, it was but real. I think, it like, so real. are you saying things have, have gotten better? I think so. Though it's funny. My kids were talking about wanting to go to an Eagles game. And we were like, they might be still, be a little too young. Like, it's, I'm from um, Miami, and Miami has the worst sports fans in the world. I, 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 they're just like, they don't get there till the second half. They leave in the third quarter. Like, it, it, the, the, the Miami sports fans are the most fickle fans ever, and I am one of them. And I, I recognize that's how it is. I will say. Philadelphia sports fans are obnoxious. Passionate, I think maybe you're mistaking uh, 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 passion. And I will, and, and like obnoxious. that's fine, man. Love your sports teams. There's nothing wrong with that. I and I and I say this, and I I don't I don't like any of the Philly sports teams because you know I'm in, like they're mostly rivals with the teams that I like, which is okay. just happenstance. Allen Iverson, in my opinion, is the greatest. Pennsylvania athlete, you know, Philadelphia athlete ever because I'm a sport basketball fan and I think the real AI. I, the, re- yeah. the real yeah. AI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I love Allen Iverson. And I remember when he was in the league, I found myself cheering for the 76ers on occasion. And I am still in therapy about that because I'm just like, <laughs> why did I, you know, but that's how powerful Allen Iverson was. And I do see, I, this is my point about Philly fans not being totally bad. When I've seen these tributes, because I tune in when Allen Iverson is doing things, when I've seen these like really loving tributes to AI and the acceptance of AI, who is an outsider, came to the NBA, changed everything, the way people dress, the way people move, whatever. And the love and adoration that Philly fans have for him and the Charles Barkleys of the world and the Kobe Bryants of the world. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I really, really dig that. So, like, you guys are passionate and you do love your own. That is without a doubt I, I also, true. It, it comes from Rocky. It's also, it's also mm-hmm. like Rocky, like the whole, spirit. that's the si- spirit of the city, right? And I think probably just to your point, Laura, like the passion, it can go too far. You mix with alcohol, <laughs> like the passion can go too far. And so I'm hoping that like it over time, maybe it just like scales back. I think it has. Yeah. yeah I still, you know, my six-year-old in the Eagles game, maybe not yet. We, you know, keep a little, maybe some language she hasn't learned yet, but. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some uh, words there. The other sport and still, I was still thinking about it. Um, it's just great. I mean, it is such, I loved, I remember when I was in DC and I'd be walking around and see people in uh, Philly sports gear. I'd be like, oh, yeah, Philly, me yeah, too. Yeah. And then when I moved back to Philly, I still would be like, huh. and then I was like, oh, this is everybody. Yeah, that's everybody. Everybody has it, right? Like yeah. it's the last few weeks, that's all you see. I mean, I think I wore my Philly sweatshirt every day for a very long time. Uh, everybody just loves it. And it's great because it does bring people together. It does. It's something it does. to talk about. It's it something does. that we have to share. And Philly is such a diverse community too, to like sure. all have these things to rally behind together is like pretty, I think, wonderful. 
And Philly, Philadelphia, look, man, gave us the roots. That's enough for me to love Philadelphia. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's enough. Like, I got I, a lot I, of you this. You mentioned the food scene in Philadelphia. I used to live in Washington, D.C. I lived there for many years. And, man, I take that Amtrak up for a week in Philly all the time. And it is a elite food town. It's not a good food mm-hmm. town. It's an elite food town. Really the best is. Chinatown on the East Coast is in Philadelphia. And I mean that food-wise, I, you know, culture-wise, all the things. It's a huge area to eat great food. Germantown is a great place to eat. Like, Philly has some top, you know, top-notch A-plus food situations going on from all over the world. Super diverse. It does. Yeah. <laughs> Period. I don't know how to add to that, but yes, if people really haven't been does. to Philly recently, please come enjoy the food. This is a this is your the end of your infomercial for Philadelphia. Well, yeah, thank yeah. you. I mean, I was picking on the fans a little bit, but it is yeah. a cool town. I love Philly. Thanks I feel for... very. I said I I grew up in uh, in Philly itself, and so it's funny. I'm in the suburbs now, and when people right, I grew up. I was like a two one five. So for people who knew the area, that was like I was in Philly. I went to school in the suburbs. You know, people were like, we don't know if we can go. S- stay over at her house because of the neighborhood. Uh, and now that I'm in the suburb, my kids will be like, I'm from Philly. I'm like, not nah, you're from outside Philly. Yeah, right? like, you I feel like we have a, I'm like, you're kind of like, I'm like, you're from like the greater Philadelphia area. So, but like, like I think Metropolitan like, Philly. Yeah. In Philly, you really feel it. Like, yeah. It's your shared experience. Uh, Laura, we, uh, it's great. It's been, been great having you here. Thanks for, for the conversation. We, we covered everything, I think, really. I got, we got most of it, man. But thank you, Laura. <laughs> thank you for your public service and your commitment to doing that. Like, not a lot of people are willing to say, I'm not going to take a paycheck for whatever, four months, and go try to make yep. the country and society better. So shout out to you. I hope lots of people hear this and see this thank and you. decide. I'm going to give one more choice. plug on that, too. Like, I think... Part of the reason why it was able to happen was because of the pandemic, that like so many of these opportunities really are not structured for working parents, Uh, right? Like you have in elections, you have really young people who are mobile and can move around. And if it were during kind of a regular like non-pandemic cycle, there's no way I could have done it. Cause I also Comcast to my kids was totally much. also Comcast. Uh, yeah. Shout out totally to Comcast supportive being super it, legit about that's it. That's not yeah. that yeah. common. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Right. So I get that there were like a lot of factors that allowed it, but it certainly did open my eyes too of like being more inclusive of creating ways for people to get involved uh, and allow right people who have these interests who might not otherwise be able to because of other family commitments or other commitments to get involved in this sort of work. This is great. I'm glad you guys got to meet also. I'm glad you guys yeah, got to meet each other. This is great. Cool. Let's, see each, other. Let's see each other around town, get some coffee. Laura, I'll see you in like a week and a half, great. right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. When you're in Philly for some food. Yeah, I'm in Philly at least once or twice a year. So next time I'm in Philly, okay, I'll great. Like, you guys yeah, do uh, Reading Terminal. Um, <laughs> that's my favorite. Yeah. You got to get like the Amish donuts and then the that's pork a sandwich. Filling, filling then, uh, trip to Reading. <laughs> <sighs> I do like Reading though. Anyway, all right, cool. Thanks. All for right. Me. All right. See you, Laura. Thank you both. Bye. Bye. Bye.